One important thing is that timing is super important. What's the right thing that you are supposed to do at any particular point of time? For instance, I think a big mistake we made back in 2014 is we focused a lot of time on improving the tech rate, improving the operational efficiency, which essentially is needed for this business to be sustainable, but probably not at that early stage of the market where fundraising and market share still mattered much more to investors as well as other ecosystem stakeholders. So we didn't know. We thought that was the right thing to do and nobody stopped us. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Did you know that over 70% of B2B trades are conducted on credit terms? However, many suppliers struggle to support this, leading to lost business opportunities. Fluid offers instant B2B financing with one tap, seamlessly integrating with marketplaces and supplier platforms. This payment flexibility empowers buyers to secure their purchases on credit terms or installments. This results in increased basket sizes and an influx of new buyers for suppliers. Fluid provides a great user experience and the ability to facilitate high-velocity trade. This differentiates Fluid from traditional digital lenders and invoice financing companies. Want to learn more? Get in touch with Tracy, Fluid's co-founder at T-R-A-S-Y at G-O-F-L-U-I-D dot I-O to learn more. Hey, Tiangan, really excited to have you on the show. You have been such a great resource on e-commerce as well as other regional trends on startups. So wanted to hear your story. Could you share a little bit about yourself real quick? Thank you for having me, Jeremy. Good to be here. My name is Jiangan. I'm currently the CEO and founder of Momentum Works, a venture outfit based out of Singapore. Uh, but for the last 10 years, I've been involved in different kinds of ventures in Southeast Asia, started with uh, ride hailing and food delivery, then e-commerce, then built a fintech company and sold a fintech company in Indonesia. And now here, here I am. I'm originally from China, but I've been in Singapore since high school. So spend more time here in Southeast Asia than China. You know, junior college, Nanyang Technological University, a Bachelor of Engineering, Honors in Computer Engineering all the way back then. So what were you like as a teenager? Were you very into computers, engineering? What was it like? Actually, it was interesting because when I was about to come to Singapore, that was when computers started to become popular in China. And my friends, and me included, sort of begged our parents to buy computers for us. And initially, we didn't know how to play with it. Every single function, you could find a computer, you, you try to play with it. And when we, we came to Singapore, and the resources were much more available back then in 2000. So, so we got to play a lot more with that. And then we said, okay, this is a popular future. Yeah. And what's interesting is that you eventually doing engineering, but how did you get into the world of startups and technology? How did you make that transition? I think there was a practical consideration when I was graduating from NTU with the computer engineering back in 2006. So lots of my friends want to look for jobs in banks or financial institutions. And, and many of them went to solve the, uh, the, the larger companies like 
HP, IBM, etc. But I also thought it was a bit unsatisfied in, in entering this kind of jobs. And by coincidence, I was actually working as a simultaneous interpreter when I was in my final year, kind of to earn some money. <laughs> and I bumped a guy who started a, a sort of media slash consultancy company, adoption, public sector. And he invited me to join and I was about to graduate. So I just did join. And that was a small company. I joined as employee number six. Over five years, we built the company to 120 people. I mean, of course, not the same as what we would sort of look at startups nowadays with tech, right? But it was still a journey, like building company from scratch. Then I think as a young person, you bored once the company's growth hits the plateau at some point in time. So that's why I decided to to go for an MBA with INSEAD. And when I was graduating from INSEAD, uh, a friend of mine there uh, said that, oh, he had a friend who was working for Rocket Internet and uh, they had a company in which tried to enter in Asia. Do you want to run it? So that's how I started. <laughs> just run the business as the managing director and co-founder. Yeah, I just run the business and uh, I have no idea what the business was. I had no idea what the product was. And what I did was having two chats and they liked me and I was not sure because I didn't have enough time to think whether I would like them, but still they gave the offer the same day. Yeah. And what was it like building Easy Taxi over those two years? I think first, you really made lots of friends because the company was at global scale and it was part of Rocket. As we're joking about it, every non-German running a key position within Easy Taxi became good friends. And you really figuring out lots of things, not only yourself, but with people who are working with you, people who are running the business in different countries. So I was running Southeast Asia. I was particularly close to the guys running the same business in Middle East, for example, because we always spend the same time pushing for the same tech features. So that's the first thing. And the second is you spend a lot of time figuring out operations, figuring out business intelligence, figuring out marketing, figuring out people. This is a very good training for you to eventually run your own business. Although running your own business is very different from being a rocket founder. Yeah. And what was interesting is that you were at the start of the taxi wars between Grab, Gojek, Uber, and yourself. What were some lessons that you took away from that experience? I think one important thing is that timing is super important. What's the right thing that you are supposed to do at any particular point of time? For instance, I think a big mistake we made back in 2014 is we focused a lot of time on improving the tech rate, improving the operational efficiency, which essentially is needed for this business to be sustainable, but probably not at that early stage of the market where fundraising and market share still mattered much more to investors as well as other ecosystem stakeholders. So we didn't know. We thought that was the right thing to do and nobody stopped us. That's an interesting dynamic because a lot of these right healing really has a lot of network effects and those network effects lead to a winners take all market. So as a result, if you know that there's a winner takes all market where you can eventually have the take rate 10 or 20 years down the road, then mm. it requires you to act a little bit crazy in a short term. At that time, were people thinking about this like network effects and winner takes all or was it something that people were just trying to figure out back then? I think people were, were trying to figure out because I think the whole rat hailing thing uh, across the world uh, started around the same time. So you do have references like Uber, you do have Didi, but and, and, and we know that some of the investors have done uh, different scenarios to, to advise the companies what's the right path uh, of growth. But like many things, right, when you are in it, running it, when you're facing daily challenges, sometimes you don't really have the energy to think about what matters the most. And, and everything, we, like a few years down the road, when you do a, a review, it all makes sense retrospectively. But when you, when you are in the ground, it's very hard for you to, to take a step out and uh, see the bigger picture. So you had a very fast and intense experience for two years at Easy Taxi 
as the regional managing director across Asia, across six countries with over total team mm-hmm. over 250 people. And then you wrapped it up and then you were like, okay, I want to do this again because you went on to become a founder and managing director again afterwards. So I'm just kind of curious about how you decided to keep going. We, we had actually a group of people who at a very young age, in your, in your mid-20s, late-20s, you were entrusted with lots of money and uh, you were entrusted with uh, a lot of responsibilities. You had a team around and you had an accelerating experience. So I think most people that I was working with were like rocket founders, found it extremely difficult for them to go back to actually work for someone else or work in a position where you need to have a lot of like reporting and stuff. So, so I think psychologically, when you had like a high and you are always looking to not necessarily replicate, but exceed that experience because if you're not satisfied, you want to do something else. That might not be entirely rational. <laughs> so why is it not entirely rational from your perspective? I think different people have different life goals. And I think almost all of us go the path of high risk. You want to build something, but the, the thing that you try to build over the years tend to have high risk and you have high chances of failure. So from investment strategy, you invest in your personal time. And the key thing is not to make major mistakes rather than to, to take a huge bet. And what's interesting is that you built two companies, right? Uh, both of them were, had very strong links with Indonesia. One was named Halal Norwood, and another one was Pasir Pinjam. Can you share a little bit about your, what your learnings were? The key thing when you start funding your own companies, raising money from other people, it feels very different when you are a managing director running a company which you don't personally own or you didn't start and, and, and own a majority. So I only felt that when I was doing my own startups. And of course, I mean, people have done lots of analysis to see that which, which exactly factors are different objectively, but the, the psychological effect is different because when you are working for Rocket, you can anytime tell them saying that, hey, I quit, here's my one month notice. But when you, and also you can always have someone to blame when the strategy doesn't work out. But when you are running all your own things, psychologically it feels very different. You are responsible for everything. You're responsible for the strategy. You're responsible for the people that you have recruited. You're responsible for the shareholders that you have brought on board. So you get much more sleepless nights compared to when you're a Rocket founder, even though I mean, as a Rocket founder, you spare tiring. From there, you went on to basically build out eventually Momentum Works as well. So could you share a little bit more about that? Because there's a career transition, right? Because you're moving from a founder and operator towards being a founder CEO of Momentum Works. Could you share a little bit more about Momentum Works? So I think Momentum Works started in 2017. And before that, I was I spent a bit of time in the Middle East doing some e-commerce uh, advisory. And, and when I came back, I was trying to figure out what to do next. And of course, I wanted to build something. And lots of people want to build things, but finding the right thing to build, find, find something that you're passionate about might not be that straightforward. So I was kind of lucky to bump into a few veterans in different parts of the tech ecosystem. They said, why don't you take some money and build a few things at the same time and use that to figure out what you're truly passionate about, what you truly want to be there, uh, build. And I think what you mentioned just now, Pasar Pinjam, Halanode, we actually built uh, under Momentum Works. I mean, some of them succeeded, most of them failed. And we had one exit, which happened a week before the pandemic. So we signed on the 13th of January, 2020. And the day a week later, and nobody could move anymore. I mean, the period after that, that half year kind of gave us a pause. We said, okay, we had always been running nonstop. Right? I mean, if one company fails and you recover the team, try to build something else, the company succeeds. And if it was not for the pandemic, we'll probably go back into the market in Indonesia or you know, any other, uh, other emerging country in Southeast Asia and try to build something. So because of the pandemic, we're forced to take a break. And it was weird. I mean, for the first time since 2020, when I first moved to Singapore, I got to discover Singapore properly. I've been to the neighborhoods and places I'd never been to before. I mean, over 20 
20 years. And then they started reflecting about what you should do next. And then Momentum Works evolved into uh, something more of, we have insights arm and consulting arm. We have uh, academy arm where we work with leadership programs for large organizations. And we still have a small ventures arm, but we become much more cautious and respectful towards ventures. During this pandemic time, you also took the time to do some writing and you wrote the book, Seen the Unseen, Behind <laughs> Chinese Tech Giants, Global Venturing. And thank you for your copy. Mm. I definitely had a great time actually learning a lot. And what's definitely interesting was that I think that back in the 2010s, for example, it's all about American companies, Uber and Airbnb. Mm. But I think around all the way up to 20, 2020, it was very much about the Chinese companies. So Alibaba, Tencent. And I think we've seen so many founders in Southeast Asia who have been inspired by the Chinese approach because of maybe it's a benefit for GDP per capita, maybe it's a benefit in this approach, cultural affinity. I thought it was a really good behind the scenes look about what's actually uh, happening there. Could you share a little bit more about your writing process? How did you decide to come out of the book and how, what the writing process was like? Okay, so before the pandemic, I was actually uh, guest lecturing at the INSEAD, the uh, China Strategy, China Strategy M MBA course. So Prof. Chen was my co-author. When the pandemic hit and we were stuck at home and he couldn't do his executive education, I couldn't build any more ventures. So we said, okay, how about we took some of the materials that were prepared, some of the case studies that we have debated over like a couple of years and this turned that into a book. Writing a book is, it's not only about writing. It's about the whole process of coming out with a product. And I was always joking to, to my founder friends that uh, pitching for a book, it's like pitching for You write a pitch and submit that to, to a few publishing houses. There will be a publisher, which is like an investment manager, which comes to talk to you. And if he likes you, he will write a memo to the to the editorial board, which is like an investment committee. And uh, if they like you, they will, they, they, they will give you a term sheet. And then they, they, if you accept the term sheet, then you negotiate a contract. So that whole process was, was interesting. But that process also gave you discipline. When you have a contract, you have some more investing resources to help you with this book. Then you are more disciplined towards finishing it. Mm. So what was the writing process like? Like you sit down every day for one hour. What was the process like for you? Initially, it was about, about the gathering uh, information because this was realized that, of course, to develop like a PowerPoint material for a four-hour course is relatively easy compared to having enough case studies, materials, reflections for a 70,000-word book. So initially, we realized, okay, a lot of the things that we discussed about we need to know more. We need to talk to the people who are actually involved in that process. The good thing is that uh, during the pandemic, everybody stuck at home. So we got the, we really got it easy to find like 25 executives to, to interview over a very short period of time, over about a month and a half. So afterwards, how to turn everything into a coherent book was actually a challenge because you have so many stories, you have different perspectives. So what we eventually did is that thanks to the professor who has, has been very good at the synthesizing stories into frameworks. And I had, I had access to to, to more stories if we wanted to look into the details and that collaborative process took oh gosh a little bit more than a year to, to actually finish in terms of like your research in terms of Chinese companies and how they are expanding globally and how they've been successful in China were there any parts of the research mm. that surprised you were there any new findings or insights that were fresh to you I think we always knew that that the leaders of many Chinese companies tech companies with the notable exception of Jack Ma were very quiet deep thinkers but before the research we didn't know I mean the, the sort of struggles they were going through dealing with this incessant competition and dealing with all the pressure from the market from users from the ecosystem from investors so I think I mean I wouldn't say a surprise but I have much more respect for those founders and after like a spending effort to piece together I mean what they have been through and how did they lead their company to where the companies are yeah 
Could you share any particular stories that you think talk, discusses the competition or the struggles or hard decisions that Chinese founders have made? Uh, just to give you an example, so nowadays people think about the new generation of tech companies in China, right? Uh, Meituan, Dodo, ByteDance. These are formidable companies and some of them grew up in the shadows of, of strong incumbents like Alibaba and Tencent. ByteDance fought Tencent for a long time and Pinduoduo, when they first emerged and people saying that it's impossible, they would break through the dominance of Alibaba. And, and one thing, one thing we realized during the research is that uh, the founders of all these three companies, Meituan, Pinduoduo, and ByteDance, they all spent the same amount of years before they started as a founder of different things before they started the current company. Seven years, trying different things, having small successes, I mean, failing other things and trying to find a fit um, before they eventually said, okay, I'm going to start ByteDance uh, or, or Total, or I'm going to start Meituan, etc. But even, so their journey is much longer than people have thought. I mean, people think about, oh, these guys are young guys who started this amazing company, but but there's a much longer journey before before that as well. Yeah. And there you are. And we want to talk about this, right? Was we want to look at the trends that are impacting Southeast Asia. And what we've seen is that a lot of these Chinese tech giants have been expanding and to Southeast Asia, right? I think they had once in the 2010s. Now, it's, again, it's another wave. So what's your point of view on Chinese tech giants and why are they expanding to Southeast Asia? I would break this into waves. I mean, what do you see? I, I think 2016, 2017, there was a wave of giant companies expanding to Southeast Asia. Tencent made a few investments. I do had a team in, in different countries and Alibaba was, was buying Lazada, investing in Tokopedia and its affiliate and group for, and financial at that time. Also built joint ventures across different countries. I think at that time, so there was hard, this kind of confidence, right? I mean, they have they fought hard and won a, a battle in China and and we go to, to another market, which is smaller, which is earlier in terms of stage of development. How hard can it be, right? And also also a bit optimistic as well because China was still the main theater for them. Whereas if you fast forward to today, I think the drives would be different because for many of these companies, we've done quite a bit of research that the growth in China is limited. They're forced to look for new growth. And of course, because of the policy and the geopolitics, and I think ex expansion becomes a necessity nowadays for many companies versus uh, some kind of like opportunistic pursuit back in 2016. Yeah, and I think uh, I was just sitting down recently and there was some news about how, for example, a lot of uh, Chinese companies in a certain vertical that's been you know, squeezed by the central government, they're now looking to yeah. invest in Southeast Asia because they have cash, but they also need to set up new businesses. And I think investing in businesses is a way for them to not only, of course, make some money, but also build up some partnerships, but also gives them some learning about the region so that they can eventually expand themselves. So I thought it was an interesting conversation that we were about the strategic rationale from that. What do you think are some of the steps that you've seen Chinese tech giants do in Southeast Asia from your Perspective. I think you mentioned about it, but investment can also lose your money. But 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 if you if your leadership spends sufficient time and mental space to to observe to get a ticket right to get a ticket to allow you to observe what's happening in this region, that gives you a much better understanding about what's going on, the dynamics which might not be seen on the surface. And if you want to make a bigger bet, we probably have already this risk a little bit. I mean, having that understanding. So let's give you an example. I think a while ago, a lot of Chinese founders, even large companies, when it comes to Southeast. Asia, they had this perception that I, I need to work with a big family in Indonesia, in Thailand, or in the Philippines. And, and a few of them jumped on at the first or the first two sort of opportunities that or parties that could collaborate with. But at the end of the day, these are very, very different organizations with different cultures and different expectations. So sometimes it's not that straightforward for them to work together. And I, I think now many companies start to have this sense of, okay, I need to understand this market a little bit more before I do something drastic. That's very true. 
I think, for example, we saw like Ping An, and then they also had the partnership with on to build Good Doctor in Indonesia as well. When you think about working with Chinese founders and Chinese companies expanding, I know you've been advising many of them. What advice do you normally provide for them? So there's one framework we, we devised in a book together with Prof. Chen, which is called Pop Leadership. People, organization, product, and leadership. And it, we, we always thought that, okay, for any company to succeed in a foreign market, it should go with this order in terms of importance. Leadership, people, organization, and a product. And all these companies from China, if they survive the competition there, they are usually quite good in terms of expertise, in terms of product, in terms of understanding about the specific domain that they're operating, be it e-commerce or supply chain or offline retail. But they have been operating in a large single market where you can concentrate the resources and the leadership had enough attention. But when you go to other markets like Southeast Asia, six large markets, six major markets, every market is different and every market requires you to make decisions to assess the situation. So typically it's a struggle for leaders, right? So your pilot is telling me to do this. If I, if I manage Indonesia is telling me something else, who should I trust? How should I allocate resources? How should I make the right decisions? So our first advice is always that, I mean, people talk about localization a lot, but the localization should really start with the mindset of the leader. I mean, the leader needs to be in the market, understanding the dynamics, understanding the consumers and partners. And if you don't have the energy to do it uh, yourself, you might, might as well invest in someone you trust to do it. I mean, otherwise it can be quite challenging. Yeah. So I think, for example, we saw that the example they had for Ping An, they had a JV with Grab mm. and then they set up Good Doctor and then uh, Ping An announced earlier this year in March that they are exiting their JV, for example. Clearly, that wasn't as expectations what they had uh, going in. So what advice would you give your Chinese companies, right, the founders of the leadership team? What advice would you give them? Is it find local leaders or combination? What advice would you do to avoid some of these issues or problems? I think I think when people get into joint ventures, sometimes they look at the resources that the, the other party might provide, right? I mean, the access to market, the on-the-ground distribution channel, et cetera, et cetera. But, but the challenge here is that when you form a joint venture, unless you assign a fully dedicated person to run it who has full control of the resources that, that of this joint venture because what we have seen typically the case even with JD's joint venture in Thailand and Indonesia is that you still require uh, both parties to continuously dedicate resources and 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 the person running the joint venture might have not have access or the political power to push for things so that always became difficult so when people enter this this kind of uh, joint venture agreements to leverage each other resources I also I think consider deeply what kind of people you have and what kind of people, uh, what kind of culture you have, what kind of organization you have, hey, work effectively together. If it can't, maybe you should, I don't know, carve out some resources dedicated for this joint venture instead of, I don't know, relying on a goodwill on, on, on the motherships on both sides. Yeah. We were discussing that we've definitely been seeing like an influx of Chinese founders as well as Chinese capital to Southeast Asia. Do you expect that trend to accelerate? Do you think it will stay at roughly the same flow or do you think that's going to decelerate in the years ahead? I think the influx really started since April and May last year when Shanghai was experiencing a, a lockdown and that caused a bit of uncertainty amongst many people in China. So people started exploring opportunities elsewhere and many of them came to Singapore. Some of them from Singapore went to Dubai, went to Europe and many of them went to the Silicon Valley and some of them went to Australia. So so these people are mobile and they are looking for opportunities. Uh, depending on their expertise and uh, their willingness to, to explore, some markets might offer them some opportunities that they can grasp, some markets might not. So what I see now is that uh, many of these people who 
who, who left China last year. They are still going around looking for opportunities or just trying to understand different markets, trying to make a decision where they are going to dedicate their next three to five years to actually build something or invest in something. So I would say that overall, there are much more people in China who are trying to expand their business outside. And But but whether it's going to accelerate or not, the successful ones eventually will be a small part of this large cohort. So my sense is that there will be a group of people who figure out how to do things and who can potentially become successful. That will disrupt the whole ecosystem. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is that there's a lot of learning, right? So I think just last week, I was sitting down with a founder. She was Chinese and she was very much exploring capital from Southeast Asia. And obviously, I think pitching the company, but also very much learning about Southeast Asia, investment mandates and approaches. What advice would you give for founders or people who are moving to Southeast Asia to fundraise and build companies? Any advice you would give them? I think many Chinese founders have been used to a very fast pace growth and depth. In China, you can start a company, fail the company very quickly, and they start again. So at least that was the case for the last decade. So in, in Southeast Asia, quite often because the availability of funds versus China between 2011 and 2016, because of the infrastructure issues and lots of things are not going to be as fast. And figuring out what are the sort of elements for you to succeed and what are the infrastructure elements, people elements, organizational elements that are missing, which will impact your speed, would probably give you the, the, the right assessment. I mean, the last thing you want is that, okay, I'm going to a market which is promising. I took approach which is too aggressive. And after a year and a half, I concluded that it's not a good market. But somebody else used all the infrastructure I've built, acquired all the customers I've educated, and then built something great towards. And this is the last thing you want as a founder. Yeah. On that note, could you share about a time that you personally have been brave? I think now I reflected over the last, the last 20 years, I actually made a number of mistakes. And being brave is really, if you ask me for one thing, is really like at a certain point in time when the company that I founded was going through a very tough time, when I was losing like five kilograms over a month, when I would wake up uh, at 4 a.m. in the morning for consecutively about a, m- a month and a half, didn't give up. And they eventually realized that was the worst time. The months afterwards became drastically better. So sometimes being brave is really about not giving up. How do you keep the energy up to not give up? I think at the end of the day, it's a drive that you want to do something great and you want to continuously do something great and uh, you have a group of people around you who you respect and who you believe that is your responsibility to not let them down the trust they have in you. So all these things come together. But I wouldn't say that, okay, it's iron heart, right? You don't think about distractions or, or, or potential doubts and stuff. But eventually, I mean, the ability to let all this positive energy prevail, I think matters a lot. And also entrepreneurs are lonely, but you always have people to talk to because there are always people who have been through the same journey as you. Thank you so much. I'd love to summarize the three big takeaways I got from this. First of all, thank you so much for sharing about your own career journey. I thought it was really fascinating to hear about how you started out actually as a computer engineer who was doing news across Southeast Asia to actually doing an NCI MBA to eventually becoming a founder and managing director in the taxi wars and other companies across Singapore and Indonesia and then eventually building out Momentum Works right as a venture builder as well as becoming an author. So I thought it was really fascinating to hear. I think the career decisions you made each step. Second thing I actually really appreciated was actually the lessons that you learned. I think you shared a lot about what was it like to be a founder, what was it like to be a venture builder and I thought that was a very interesting dynamics like you said about not just the good times but also the bad times and also how it's often too busy to even think about network effects and all these other theoretical stuff because there's so much work that has to be done lastly thanks so much for sharing about I think the Chinese companies about uh, how competitive it actually is in Southeast Asia but also discussing about how I think the shrinking growth plateau in 
China and the intense competition is causing a new wave of Chinese expansion globally and into Southeast Asia. And I think you shared a lot of good advice um, to both the companies about how to think about how to do the strategic expansion, but also how Chinese founders who are personally moving should be thinking about how to build the businesses in a more sustainable manner, but also in a way that is integrated across the region. So uh, thank you so much, Jiang'an, for uh, sharing your journey and experience. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.